and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. During the past year, one of the big unanswered questions that the scientific community and media has debated is how did COVID-19 actually originate? Was it from eating animals in a wet market, or could it possibly have leaked out of a lab in China? Early in the pandemic, mainstream media strongly dismissed and even censored discussions of a possible lab leak, calling the idea a conspiracy theory. But now, suddenly the topic is being discussed again and with more sincerity. And it's become obvious to many that we really didn't have the evidence or information to actually rule out a lab leak or lab origins so quickly in the first place. Facebook has even reversed course two weeks ago and is no longer censoring discussions of a lab leak as misinformation. So today I'm speaking with scientist and writer Jonathan Latham, who has been researching and writing articles about the origins of COVID since about June of 2020. And more specifically, he's been one of the key voices putting forth a very evidence-based and detailed hypothesis about why and how COVID might have originated from a lab and not a wet market. All right. Well, hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I am really excited for this conversation. I have a lot of questions and we're going to just get right into um, the work you've been doing and the lab leak and uh, or COVID origin stories. My pleasure, Serena. For those people listening who don't know, you have a website, Independent Science News, where you have been covering, you've written multiple articles this past year about the COVID-19 origins, looking at the genetics of the virus and the different hypotheses about how it originated. And I love your articles. They are the most um, nuanced, in-depth, and cited articles on this topic that I've seen anyone write. So I think everyone should go read them. But the first thing I want to ask you about, uh, just briefly, is tell me a little bit about your background and why you started researching the origins of COVID-19 specifically? So, yeah, I mean, I am a virologist, albeit a plant virologist uh, by training. So that was my PhD, which I did in England in uh, 91 to 96. And then, uh, then I was a postdoc researcher for three years in an RNA biology lab. And then I uh, basically left academia and, uh, and we worked on organic farms and done various things in the food system. And now we run the website Independent Science News. And also, so I'm the editor of that. And then, uh, so we, but uh, it's, you know, formally run by our nonprofit, which is called the Bioscience Resource Project. And our main is- issues really are the food system, right? So covering COVID-19 origins is a side issue in many ways for us, you know, we're interested in the, you know, the last, the last article I wrote and published in the scientific literature is about the myth of a food crisis. How like everybody believes 
because they cite FAO models that we know we're going to run short of food anytime soon. And basically, those models are basically assumption driven. They are basically exaggerating demand and underestimating supply to such an extent that it looks like we're going to have a food crisis, even though the, the whole global food system is in a, a sort of continuous state of food oversupply. So, so this is really important stuff because, you know, nobody wants to, to nobody in policy circles, at least, you know, they have a perfect excuse to reject sustainable uh, agriculture. They have a perfect excuse to reject uh, organic agriculture. They, you know, they continually advocate for GMOs and pesticides on the basis that otherwise we're going to starve and, and it's not true. And so, so this is like super important, but that's kind of the normal work that we do. So the COVID origins kind of goes back to my PhD in a sense of like, you know, plant viruses and animal viruses are not really that different from each other at the end of the day. That it does. It, it, and I've seen a lot of people that normally spend their time talking about um, the food system and GMOs talking about COVID and, and on both sides, like even in the plant-based and vegan community, I've seen a pretty big push for people to talk about the wet market hypothesis because they feel like that connects, you know, the pandemic stems from eating animals and animal exploitation. And, and so there's been a big push in a lot of vegan circles to promote that hypothesis more than anything else. So I guess the, this is the next big question is, the idea that COVID-19 came from a lab in Wuhan is now being a little bit more accepted and discussed by mainstream media. So can you, from your research, share like what the basic hypothesis about a lab leak is versus the wet market theory and what you think the evidence shows right now? Mm. So, so, you know, initially the wet market theory was attractive to me too. You know, I mean, I'm, fully aware that that virus outbreaks, pathogenic virus outbreaks can come from farms and animal agriculture, and most especially from CAFOs, but there are other possibilities too. So, so that was our initial hunch. And actually we published an article from an epidemiologist called Rob Wallace, mm -hmm. uh, right? That was our first article on the pandemic. And he was basically outlining the different possibilities of what kind of animals it might've come from, what kind of farming was going on in China. But, uh, you know, when, when, when it became evident that there was a virology, a huge virology lab in Wuhan that specifically studied bat coronaviruses, uh, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me because I also know that uh, viruses escape from labs. And so, you know, there are many examples of death. There's a smallpox that escaped from uh, a lab in England, there's, there's, uh, there's an H1N1 flu that uh, escaped from a Russian, we think a Russian lab, but it was, you know, in Siberia, it's hard to tell whether it was Russia or China. Mm -hmm. But in the 1970s, that became a major global epidemic of flu. Really? That, that was basically, uh, the, the reason why it wasn't as bad an epidemic as it might have been is that Basically, the population that was over 20 years old had a re residual immunity to that virus. You know, it really badly affected people who were under 20 years of age. 
And, you know, fortunately, those are the most resilient people in many ways. And so, so that was a lucky thing. And we were, you know, I remember in 1977 uh, being sent home from school because the, virtually the entirety of the pupil body was laid low with, with the influenza virus. And, you know, wow. we only figured out uh, less than 10 years ago that this, this actually escaped from a lab. So, so there is a precedent for viruses escaping from labs. There's absolutely no doubt that it happens. And there are regular leaks uh, from labs all over the world that study highly pathogenic viruses. You know, people are studying Ebola viruses and Henipah viruses and coronaviruses, and they all have their own histories of lab escape. And some of them have led to significant uh, outbreaks. You know, among the foot and mouth disease uh, virus, there have been two foot and mouth disease viruses in Britain. And uh, one of them is acknowledged to be a, uh, a lab outbreak. But we wow. think that the first foot and mouth disease outbreak was also a lab escape too. So it's very interesting because in that first one, I lived through that first pandemic, it was a misery. You know, we were basically stuck in the countryside. We couldn't go places. And uh, so I was living on a farm at the time. We couldn't go places. And because we didn't want to spread the virus, but it now turns out, for example, that this is a strain that was being studied in a BSL-4 lab in England and was found nowhere else in the country. And BSL-4 is biosafety level yeah, four. Yeah, it's the highest level of, of biosecurity. So, it's, so Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, for example, is China's only BSL-4 lab. They have BSL-2 and BSL-3 labs. But BSL-2 is a very low level of biosecurity, whereas BSL-4 is like, you know, they process their own waste and they, they, have, they have to wear, you know, in negative pressure suits and they have to do all this kind of stuff. But, but at the end of the day, you know, those BSL-4 labs are probably, you know, in some ways just as likely to spread pathogens as other ones because, you know, it's very difficult to work under these circumstances, for example. So... So they, uh, so one of the the lessons of the the well, let's go back to the first the, the first foot and mouth disease virus outbreak. One of the interesting things is that uh, it's alleged to come to have come from uh, a farm in the north of England. And what's interesting about that example is that first of all, it's there's no uh, there's no information publicly available about how that virus is basically got to that farm, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea was that the uh, farmer was uh, spreading contaminated pig soil to their pigs, and those pigs became infected with the virus, and then it spread around the country, right? That was the accepted story at the time, but no one has ever explained where that contaminated pig soil came from, right? So like, like it's another situation where Basically, no one has bothered to investigate what happened. And you have to ask yourself the question, why did no one bother to, to investigate this outbreak, which basically devastated animal agriculture in Britain? Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's a red flag, right? Why would you, why would you not investigate this total disaster? And, and the second question is, well, it was the same exact same strain of foot and mouth disease virus. The only known place that it was kept in Britain was on a, in a BSL-4 lab, right? So you've got these data points, right? That are, and there's others that I could cite, and I won't go into that. 
But there are other red flags too, that this was actually a lab outbreak. So what's in, one, one of the interesting things that's happened in all this discussion is that you know, one of the main data points that the people who say it was a, say that the COVID-19 was a natural zoonotic outbreak, they always point back to the, what they consider to be the history of zoonotic outbreaks. And they point <laughs> to outbreaks like foot and mouth disease but actually, if you go back and investigate many of those outbreaks, the answer you come up with is actually significantly different. And, and so we think that uh, there's a long history of actual lab escapes that have actually turned into pandemics and been, uh, been basically covered up. But the, the issue with, the, with the, the current COVID-19 outbreak is you have a, a lab in Wuhan that has been basically studying bat coronaviruses, going out to the wild, collecting bat coronaviruses, and then doing research on them, doing things like gain-of-function research, which is basically swapping around spike proteins and creating basically enhanced viruses, putting them into laboratory mice, possibly other animals too. And these laboratory mice are humanized mice, some of them, right? So they have basically human spike proteins in them, so they've been collecting viruses, swabbing viruses, assessing their potential for human infectivity. And, uh, and so they are basically a prime candidate for the source of this outbreak. And you have the possibility, like, you know, Wuhan is not expected to be a high probability place for the out outbreak of a coronavirus, right? There are much more likely places for that to happen. You know, places that are closer to bats, places that are closer to the type of coronavirus that this actually is. And, uh, and these coronaviruses exist all over the world, right? So you've got, on the one hand, you've got this outbreak could have happened anywhere, but Wuhan is actually, statistically speaking, quite an unlikely place because it doesn't have the right bats and the right viruses. So, so we have uh, a whole set of uh, pointers, if you like, which suggest that this is that the virus actually came from this lab. And the, the, so these were the sort of basic understand, that's the basic understanding with which we went into this discussion. We're a little bit late in all this. Like we didn't start researching it until April and uh, April last year. And we published our first article. I think it actually came out, we actually put it online a year ago today. First oh, wow. And, uh, but we basically laid out all these different, the kind of basics of the case. Like, you know, there is this lab that, that, these, that was doing this kind of research. And that, that, that article uh, was on the front page of Google for like six months. Because like people are basically Googling the question and, and they're getting answers from the mainstream media and the scientific media basically saying, you know, it couldn't have come from a lab. There's no way it could have come from a lab. All these headline things and quotes from people saying the lab escape is a conspiracy, a lab escape is an impossibility, so on and so forth. And ours was pretty much the only article out there that was well referenced and laid out a case that actually, this is not a conspiracy. This is a perfectly uh, test, even testable scientific hypothesis. And so, so those are the basic, those are the basics of the arguments. And then since then, loads and loads of other information has come out 
and uh, perhaps we'll go into that in a minute. But those are the that's a simple outline of what's going on here. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. So I, I have a lot of questions, um, but one, I guess, is I want to get a little bit deeper into some of the science and and my understanding of it. So um, just tell me if I'm correct here, but coronaviruses are um, like they're naturally in a lot of bat populations. Is that that's correct? Yeah, I mean, we consider, you know, it's, it's agreed. We, we agree and everyone else seems to agree that coronaviruses are basically have a kind of a reservoir in mm-hmm. bats. Like bats are very sociable animals and they, they basically live in multi-species colonies. They come in contact with each other. They migrate they, they, and then they come back to their bat, to the caves and they easily transmit viruses between themselves. And so reservoirs of coronaviruses have built up and if you if you you know if you look at the coronaviruses that have, can be found, for example, in even in whales, but also you know rats and uh, certain farm animals like camels and so forth, the 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 lineages of all those coronaviruses go back to uh, viruses that are present in bats. Okay, and can most of those like prior to COVID-19, how many of those coronaviruses that were found in bats were capable of infecting and sickening humans? So, well, it's rare that bat viruses can infect humans. You know, quite a lot of tests have been done. And for the most part, they're not capable of infecting humans, but there is a minority of them that have. And one of the one of the features of these coronaviruses is that, you know, there is anyway a residual population of coronaviruses that cause common colds in people and so forth. Mm-hmm. And these, these coronaviruses come from different branches of the coronavirus phylogenetic tree. And what that means is that in the distant past, or maybe even not so distant past, but at some point in the past, these viruses jumped from bats into people. So there are four different coronaviruses that fit into that category, even before, uh, even before the SARS outbreak of 2012, say 2002 rather, and the MERS outbreak of 2011. There already were a small number of coronaviruses circulating in the human population. Okay, yeah. So I'm just like, just trying to put the pieces together, uh, basically. So there was this theory about the wet market, right, last year that basically there was live animal trafficking or these wet markets had exotic animals that we don't normally eat in the U.S. that were being trafficked. So and it was like a pangolin or, um, you know, some animal. And so I hear this talk about an intermediate uh, host, you know, being important. Can you talk about like the importance of like why why is it meaningful that we haven't been able to find an intermediate host or we can't figure out um, what animal, you know, the, the coronavirus has jumped to from bats, for example? Yeah, so, so that's a good question. So, you know, the history of the two uh, viral pandemics of coronaviruses that, that we know about, the SARS in 2002 and MERS in 2011, those, the, those outbreaks had a specific character. 
right? And it's presumably derives from the fact that humans don't come in contact with bats very often, right? So, so what happens in both of those outbreaks is that the bat virus came in contact with some kind of domesticated or semi-domesticated animal and was amplified in those animals. And presumably this happens reasonably often, but for the most part, these uh, domesticated or semi-domesticated animals, so we're talking about camels in the case of MERS and civet cats in the case of, uh, in the case of SARS-1. So civet cats are farmed in China, right? So civet cats are part of the diet of people who live, especially in Guangdong, which is the province where SARS-1 broke out. Okay. So, so they are, um, so basically what, what happened in those outbreaks is that humans caught it from these domesticated or semi-domesticated animals. And it just happens that these, these animal, intermediary animals have, uh, have receptors that are quite similar to the human receptor and that the virus that evolved inside those animals could also infect humans. So out of, you know, you can imagine that, uh, that fat viruses come in contact with all kinds of species, you know, as animals out there, that, mammals especially, we're talking about, that eat bats, for example, or come into contact with bat droppings or whatever, live in bat caves or whatever, they quite often, presumably, become infected with those coronaviruses because humans don't haven't come in contact with those animals, there's no implications for, for the human species. But when they are, when these animals are domesticated or semi-domesticated or involved in a wildlife trade, then there's the possibility that that virus can then go on to cause a human pandemic. And so that's the history of those two pandemics. We identified the in, animal intermediate. The animal intermediate had an almost identical virus to the one that caused the pandemic. So, so this was the presumption of many virologists. So even though we know that SARS viruses have escaped from labs in the past and caused deaths, the human deaths and out, many outbreaks and so forth, the presumption of virologists was that this was another case of that. So people immediately go to the wet markets in places in, in Wuhan, because that's where the locate, location of the outbreak seems to be, and they sample in, the, in, the, in that wet market and they find examples of early cases of the virus. And so, so it seems like a simple slam dunk case, you know, it came from this wet market. It was brought in on some animal that was being trafficked or brought into the wet market, except that uh, it turned out there were other cases, possibly earlier cases that seemed to have no contact with the wet market. And it seems like the very earliest viruses that were found at the wet market were not the earliest viruses of the outbreak. So, so you can trace the outbreak, right? So that you imagine that the first virus to jump into a person has a certain genetic sequence, mm -hmm. RNA sequence. Then as that virus spreads from person to person, it accumulates mutations. And you can use these accumulated mutations to in this case show that the earliest examples of the virus that we can find, that we have found, were not the ones at the wet market, right? That means and the wet market was not the source of the outbreak. It was okay. an amplification event, right? So that's a pretty much conclusive finding now.
and when you say at the wet market, you're not talking, you're, were these, um, were these viruses in people that were at the wet market? So like, that's the importance of it or have virus have coronaviruses, COVID-19, has that been found in animals that were being eaten at the wet markets? Yeah, it, it was not found in any live animals that were being eaten at the market. Okay. Right. So, so what happened was at the wet market, scientists sampled the people who were selling they also sampled, you know, doorknobs and, and, you know, floor waste and whatever. They sampled whatever they could, but it, mm-hmm. the virus was not found in living animals. And so, so this, is, uh, this is, you know, this, this is a sign that the virus did not come from animals that were in the market. So, so but it's not, uh, you know, exactly what was sampled. You know, this is, this is sensitive information in China. And so we don't, you know, we have kind of secondhand information, if you like, about mm-hmm. what was sampled. We know what people say was sampled, but, but we do know the sequences of those viruses, for example. And the Chinese themselves have ruled out the possibility that the, that the, uh, that the virus itself came to humans from the, from the wet market. That's their conclusion. Okay. So, but the other thing that's interesting about these animal spillovers, from these intermediate species. There's something that's really important. It's that in the case of MERS and the case of SARS-1, there were actually multiple patient zeros, right? And each patient zero had a different version, slightly different version of the virus in them. So there were actually multiple spillover events, right? What appears to be in the case in this outbreak is there, there do not seem to have been multiple spillover events. Right. Because if if what I'm saying to you at the beginning is true, that there's an intermediate species that spreads its virus to people, then Mm -hmm. anyone who comes in contact with that civet or those civets or the friends of those civets or that farmer or whatever was going to independently acquire that virus. Right. Right. So what happened with those outbreaks? Multiple people got infected by multiple different camels. Right. They were all patient zeros. In, this, in the case of this outbreak, there appears to have only been one spillover event because you can trace the pattern of mutations back to a sim- single ancestral strain, right? So that tells you that this is not a typical uh, zoonotic outbreak, right? This is a powerful mm-hmm. piece of information. Absolutely. So can you expand more then on um, your more recent findings and, and you had a, a, a thesis from some Chinese researchers translated and it, it relates to um, bat coronaviruses that were collected from a mine, I guess, and brought to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Can you explain um, all of that? Yeah, I can, ex- <laughs> I can, I can give the outlines. Yeah. So, so the, the basic story here is that in 2012, uh, some miners, we think six miners, were uh, hired to work in a mine which was full of bat guano. And this bat guano, so the mine is called the Mojang Mine. The year is 2012. These six miners go there and they shovel bat guano and one by one they become sick, right? And within a couple of weeks, they're all in hospital. And they, uh, three of them end up dying. 
and they have, uh, they basically, no, no one knew about this outbreak, really. There was one report about it in Science Magazine, but there's practically no, no information about it in the scientific literature. So if we go forwards to the origins of the pandemic, uh, the, what, the, lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology publishes a paper with the genome sequence of some of the very early patients with the coronavirus. And they published this paper and alongside those patient samples, they published the sequence of a genome that is the nearest living and relative ancestor of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now this virus, they don't tell us this at the time, that virus came from the mine where the miners got sick, right? Okay. But they don't reveal this, right? This is a really interesting fact. And, and they don't tell us this. So where did they say it came from? They just published it and didn't... They just published it. They just published it. They said basically they implied that it just came from their freezer and they collected it from some random place in China. Okay. Right? And, and this is really interesting because uh, they published a sequence that seemingly comes from nowhere. Simultaneously, some other Chinese researchers sequence SARS-CoV-2 as well. Like there was a bunch of papers that came out almost identical timing. And they, the set of the Chinese researchers that interest me, they published a paper which basically said that uh, the nearest known relative of SARS-CoV-2 is something called uh, BAT, uh, BTCOV4991. It's a very short sequence of virus, but it's basically almost identical to SARS-CoV-2. Out of 400 nucleotides, there are, there are four nucleotide differences. So it's an almost identical virus. And the person, that, that, that virus is known to science because it was published on by the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2016, right? Okay. So what that means is, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology appears to have been working on a virus almost identical to SARS-CoV-2 since at least 2016, right? Which they claim to have harvested actually in 2013. Okay. So when the Wuhan Institute of Virology, so these are not from the, these people are not from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? But when you, when, but when you put those two things together, right? You realize that this is a dynamite piece of information that is being published by these Chinese researchers. They're basically saying that the Wuhan Institute of Virology has a super close virus and they've probably been working on it for a, for a long time. And when you say working on it, like what were they doing with this? Were they, were they, did they have bats that were infected with this that they were experimenting on? Um... Yeah. So, so, so this, this is a great question and, and it's kind of a million dollar question because the Wuhan Institute of Virology is not saying anything about this virus. They haven't published about it. They haven't done anything. All they've done is published a very short sequence of it, like 400 nucleotides, which is basically 1% of the genome. Okay. And, but, but the presumption is, you know, you read the paper where this 4991 sequence comes from, and it says these viruses definitely should be worked on in the future, right? So they're saying this, and then they don't publish anything 
And the next thing we know, we have a SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, right? And when they publish, so, so they publish, so the Wuhan Institute of Virology people, they publish their patient samples, right? And they sequence one of the first sets of genomes of the, of the human virus. Uh-huh. They also publish alongside it, the sequence of another virus that essentially is identical to the 4991 sample that the first lot of researchers that I mentioned identified, right? And okay. what that, what but they don't say anything about their research history. They don't mention 4991, which is their own virus, the identical sample, right? So they publish, they publish this sequence and they say, basically this thing came from our freezer. They imply it just came from our freezer. They had never done anything with it. And they, and this was, this was the, this is the, you know, from their freezer records, this is the nearest known virus, right? And it turns out that this virus, which is called RATG13, so they changed the name. Not only did they not cite the earlier, earlier sequence that they published, they, they rename it and they, they, neither, they neither cite it and then they rename it, right? So it looks like they're trying to cover up the history that they have with this virus. That's, that's the, you know, like you don't just change the name of a virus. You don't fail to cite previous research that you've done on, on viruses. The field of virology would turn into chaos. Wow. And, and so, so, so they, they, they are not acknowledging a long research history with this virus, right? They've already sequenced parts of it. And it turns out, it subsequently turns out that they had sequenced pretty much the whole genome several years before, right? In 2017 and 2018, they had more or less sequenced the whole thing. And, and the fact that they're sequencing it and working on it, working on it in that sense, implies that they're doing other stuff too, right? That they are messing around with a spike protein, that they may be swapping it with this, that, and the other. It implies all kinds of stuff about what's going on, but which just has never been published. So, so, so you've got this aspect of like, you know, why is this lab basically uh, hiding, misleading people at best, right? about the history of their research on the virus that is the nearest known relative of SARS-CoV-2. But then we come back to the minor story. It turns out that 4991 and RITG13, which are basically the same, they're taken from the same bat anal swab. They're basically identical in sequence. There's no reason to rename them or pretend that you didn't have a history. It turns out that this sample came from the mine where the miners got sick. Right. In now, 2012. In 2012. And so, so this, they collected these samples in 2013. But even as early as 2012, they were sampling this mine looking for coronaviruses. And so the master's thesis that we translated transforms this story. Because what it basically says is that according to the doctor who wrote the master's thesis, who treated the six miners, three of whom died, they concluded that these miners had a coronavirus, right? And that they had, they basically, if you read the thesis, what it appears to be, the reasons why they think that is in part because those miners have symptoms that are basically identical to COVID-19, right? If you went into hospital today and you reported to your GP and talked to your, and said you had those symptoms, they would immediately, excuse me, conclude that you had COVID-19. 
after they had dry cough, they had high fever, they had, uh, they had uh, basically deep lung infections and they're atypical pneumonia, right? And, and so, so the, what then becomes interesting is that samples from those miners were sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, like blood samples from the miners were sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the theory that we developed is that, uh, you know, after translating this master's thesis, is that basically the Wuhan Institute of Virology was, was in part working on RATG13, but the most important thing that it was probably doing was working on the samples extracted from the miners, right? So we think that the miners basically developed a human adapted virus, right? They were basically sick in hospital. Some of them were in hospital for five months and sick for nearly six months. Wow. Right? So they had infections over a very long period of time, long enough for the virus to have evolved and become human adapted inside their tissues, right? So these miners, some of them were very, very sick for a very long time. And they, uh, basically the Wuhan Institute of Virology had access to any samples they wanted from the miners. And they would have basically, you would be, they would have been foolish, crazy really, not to have done all they could to extract virus from those miners because their whole you know, scientific rationale for studying bat coronaviruses is that these bat coronaviruses will jump out at any point and infect people. And here's an example in which it appeared to have done done exactly that. Like, why would they just take these samples? They sent these samples and then do nothing with them. Right? It's pretty much inconceivable that that's what that they did nothing with those. So, do you think then that the illness that the miners were sick with is that like? Because then, if these samples have been in this lab, is that the same as COVID nineteen today? Like, did COVID nineteen actually? Have its for were they the patient zero or is it a different, uh, a different coronavirus or different strain? Yeah. So so this is an important, but sort of nuanced question, right? <laughs> because when when they get when the miners become sick in the hospital, they get sick with a virus that's presumably similar to RATG thirteen, right? Mm-hmm. Which is still four percent different in nucleotide sequence from SARS-CoV-2. There's like 50 years of normal coronavirus evolution gap between those two things. Okay. Right? So what they, what they presumably acquired inside the mine was some kind of like massive dose. Like they're, you know, they're shoveling away, right? Eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, shoveling that guano presumably laced with coronaviruses, mixed coronaviruses, I will guess, because there were a lot of coronaviruses in this mine, right? When they subsequently go and sample, they find coronaviruses everywhere. So those miners initially got sick with a virus that's not really human adapted, right? So you could, you could say they didn't actually have the disease COVID-19, but when people caught SARS and MERS and COVID-19 and quite likely other coronaviruses, there are common symptoms, right? Of all these diseases, right? That they go deep into the lungs, that they cause high fevers, they cause dry cough. They have a lot of similarities, 
right? So, so random bat viruses, if you force fed someone random bat viruses, coronaviruses, you can imagine that they would get symptoms, quite, you know, comparable symptoms, right? But when, so, but that doesn't mean those viruses, those minors, rather, when they first got sick in the mine, had COVID-19 itself, right? Our theory is that COVID-19 took time to evolve inside their lungs. Okay. It may have involved recombination between two or three or four or even more uh, viruses that were present inside that mine. So we know, for example, that there are some other coronaviruses that have subsequently been found quite close to the mine that actually in parts of their genomes are a little bit more similar to, uh, to SARS-CoV-2 than is the one that was actually found in the mine, right? That means that what infected those miners in part came from either a virus that some kind of recombination of those that existed in the mine at the time or that the recombination existed, happened inside the miners' lungs, right? And the final outcome virus was SARS-CoV-2, right? This, is, this would be our theory. So, okay. so basically, basically, a whole mix of viruses infect the miners. They're not perfectly human-adapted viruses, but they're enough, they're human-adapted enough to cause the miners to become very ill. And then you, you know, they end up with suppressed immune systems. They end up being treated in the hospital and kept basically barely alive. And, and then the virus has a chance to, to basically evolve into a lung adapted virus. And what's interesting about this theory is that it explains all of the mystery features of the virus and in terms of how it broke out in Wuhan. Right. So, for example, you know, it explains obviously why it broke out in Wuhan, because they were researching it there. But it also explains why the virus appears to have been exquisitely human adapted. Right. So one of the features of the outbreak virus that appeared in Wuhan in late 2019 is that it doesn't didn't doesn't seem to have needed to evolve to in, to to become a pandemic virus. Right? The initial strains of, of the virus basically were perfectly well adapted. In fact, really well adapted to people. You know, like it had, it had a very exquisite fit to the human spike, to the human ACE2 receptors. It's, the virus's uh, uh, spike protein could, could fit with the human ACE2 receptor extremely well. Mm -hmm. Like it bound to the human ACE2 receptor in a way that you can't, I don't think possibly explained by chance, right? So, so this virus just is ready to go as a pandemic virus when it appears in Wuhan. So this is what this is where comparison with SARS one and MERS. There's a MERS, by the way, is a Middle Eastern respiratory mm -hmm. syndrome virus. Is that both of those viruses when they appeared in their patient in patient zero, patient zero was basically an incubator of a virus that, that then becomes more adapted to people, right? So, so, each, so the virus has to go through a set of mutations before it can become a proper pandemic virus because it's come from camels, right? It came from bats, then it came from camels. So it's adapted to bats, then it adapts to, to camels, and then it has to adapt to people, right? And that takes a series of mutational steps. Mm -hmm. And... So this is, these mutational steps have been identified in those first two pandemics, right? No, mu no such mutational step is identified in this case, right? 
So okay. that, that, that implies that the virus that entered those people was already adapted to people when it started its pandemic journey in Wuhan. That makes right? sense. So, so that's a scary thought, right? Because that means that it's adapted in human cells, quite possibly adapted in human uh, bodies. Right? There's a difference between being adapted to human cells and being adapted to human bodies. So, so for example, a virus that was simply adapted to human cells would not necessarily know how to deal with the human immune system, right? So the human immune system is a body function, right? So like a human cell, a cell line, or, or even you know, a liver cell kept in, a liver tissue, for example, organs kept in, in tissue, uh, kept in a live culture in a lab, right? If you evolve the virus inside there to quote unquote, be infectious to human cells or to, or to humans, it still wouldn't necessarily function well in a whole human body mm -hmm. because the spike protein, for example, has all these adaptations, right? The spike protein of the virus is a very prominent part of the virus, right? And that prominence means that the immune system just gloms onto the spike protein as soon as it can, as soon as it sees it, right? So the virus has all these mechanisms to inhibit the, the, the human immune system, the antibodies from, from attaching to it. So the spike protein moves up and down and changes shape and so forth, right? During the course of like on a microsecond basis. Okay. Right? So the spike is like changing shape or, in, you know, like quicker than you can wave your, quicker than I'm waving my arms around, right? It's changing shape. But what's that doing is, what's that doing is allowing it to bind to the receptors on the human cells that it needs to do, but also hiding itself from the immune system, right? So the virus is exquisitely adapted, not only to human cells, but also to avoiding the human immune system, right? So that means it was not only, uh, did not only did it evolve inside human cells, but it inside, evolved inside a human body, right? So, so this is one of the very powerful reasons why we think that our theory it should be taken super seriously because no other theory of the virus pandemic that people engineered it or or or, or that it was passage in human cells probably accounts for the evolutionary adaptiveness of the virus and and so so this is this is one theory one reason why we think that evolving in the human in, in the miners is such a such a powerful theory that makes a lot of sense for sure. But so the question, I guess, then that comes to mind from stuff I've read is I hear a lot of people talking about gain of function research, seeming to think that it was gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology that gave um, COVID-19 all of its features. So do you think do you think there's been any gain of function research or genetic engineering, or do you think most of this came just from that, those first few patients incubating the virus uh, alone, or is there some human intervention aspect that you think could have also enhanced it? I mean, we are pretty neutral on that question. Okay. Right? So there is, you know, we think that it's perfectly plausible there was no need for any gain of function research, right? If you can adapt a, virus, a bat virus from human bodies, then it's already adapted to people, right? After being there for, 
for six months or so. Mm -hmm. However, that does not mean that people were not doing genetic engineering on that virus, right? They were presumably doing something with it, right? When, you know, like, like the first thing that you do, if you took a virus from, if you isolated a human virus, you found one in, in blood samples or tissue samples that you were in possession of, the first thing that you would do is be to try to sequence the genome. The second thing that you would try to do is put it in some kind of cell culture, right, to amplify it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you try to clone it, right? You try to create a permanent DNA copy, right? Because, because with a RNA virus, if you just try to maintain it, if you just want to keep it, like you've got a limited sample, but you want to be able to keep it, you pretty much have to turn it into, you can stick it in your freezer, of course, and you can keep dipping in and, in and out of your freezer, but the versions that you get from the freezer will always be different from each other, quite likely. But secondly, uh, you, you know, that sample will run out eventually. Mm -hmm. So what you, what you would uh, strive to do is create some, a DNA copy of that genome, right? And what virologists call an infectious clone. And then that infectious clone becomes your inexhaustible supply and permanent record of what it is you're working on. So that is the other thing that they would try to do. And then the other thing they would try to do is try to uh, study it. Like, you know, what's special about the spike? What happens when we put it into mouse cells? What happens when we put it into primate cells? What happens when we do this, that, and the other? Because mm -hmm. this is a scientific gold mine. Right. right? Like, like you've identified progenitor viruses and then you've got this, this human virus, you basically have identified a, an epidemic in the process of breaking out, right? So you've, you, know, you can tell the world that you saved everybody from a virus infection, but also virus pandemic, but you can also publish nature papers and science papers and become super famous based on this research, right? So the question uh -huh. is, like, you, know, you basically spend a lot of time trying to study the virus. You know, the other complication here is that in Wuhan, even though this is their top coronavirus lab, they don't have a BSL-4 facility, right? And the, in 2012 and 2013... Oh, that's new. Yeah, yeah, the BSL-4 lab is new, right? It only just had been open a year, right? Okay. When the pandemic broke out, right? So you'd have to be slightly suicidal to study a human adapted coronavirus in a BSL-2 lab or a BSL-3 lab, because you just don't have the biosecurity facilities that you need. You know, like, you know, this is a virus spread through, through air, aerosols and, and, air, and is basically airborne and can be, in, in, uh, can be infectious, you know, to your lab people if they're not wearing, you know, negative pressure suits and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, right? you'd have to be kind of crazy to work on it, right? So, so this is one reason why we think it took from 2012 to 2019 for the virus to break out, right? Because they, they may have been waiting, probably were waiting for the BSL-4 lab to be properly operational before they, before they actually started their serious experiments. Wow, okay. That definitely, yeah, gives me a lot to think about. So kind of going in a different direction then, this theory that you have written papers on and, and talk about, like I said before, it's just now kind of becoming 
acceptable to discuss in the mainstream media, but you've been talking about it a lot longer, you know, earlier in the pandemic when it was dismissed as a conspiracy theory and crazy and pseudoscience. So I'm curious to hear, what are your thoughts on that change? And just what do you think about the fact that that was dismissed so much that people were saying there's no evidence that there was genetic engineering, so it couldn't have come from a lab. And now media is is more honestly discussing this possibility. Yeah, I mean, the media is a little more honestly discussing this (laughs) this possibility. I mean, I mean, you've got two things going on in the media, you know, there's really a lot to unpack here. But there's two things going on in the media. You've got the kind of right-wing media, you know, Fox News, that have been kind of pounding away on this issue for a little while now, you know, not since, at least since Donald Trump raised it, mm-hmm. right? And they have, you know, I get requests to be interviewed on some of these, these uh, from some of these newspapers, like the Daily Caller and all these uh, places, and they have, you know, they, in my opinion, have gone beyond the evidence, right? In one, in one sense, you know, basically right. to see themselves and their, their uh, xenophobic, anti-China, racist agenda, right? They have basically, you know, implied that it for sure it came from a lab and so on and so forth, right? And I think, you know, I now do not think really there's a serious doubt. But at the time, you know, that when we knew less, there was there were there were major doubts, and we mm-hmm. you know one one of the interesting scientific questions here is will we ever be able to prove that it came from a lab, right? Because mm-hmm. even if some whistleblower comes out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and said, "Yeah, I made SARS-CoV-2," right? They they're going to be impugned. They're going to be have their character examined in horrible ways. They're going to you know bad stuff will happen to them, and 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 will we believe them? Right, even if they said it, right. So, so I don't think proof is ever likely to actually happen in this case. But this doesn't make it different from any other case of science, right? Do we think we've proven the theory of relativity? Do we think we've proven all these other scientific theories? Right. The answer is no. But but when there's a huge mountain of evidence on one side and a tiny speck of doubt on the other side, we maintain an open mind about that tiny speck of doubt. But we also have to respect the huge mountain of evidence on the other side and say, and act as if, right, that this thing is true, right? I, you know, I I don't believe in the theory of relativity, right? I act as if the theory of relativity is true. And, and, you know, and, but I also know that, you know, there are other things going on in the world that, that could possibly provide other explanations but but you so you're never going to get proof and so lots of people are saying things like in the media today the guardian has an article and the the person who wrote the little byline at the top saying, well it will change our understanding of the pandemic if it can be proven right well it's not going to be proven right i I, (laughs) just on the basis of simple scientific philosophy right but we can respect the fact that doesn't mean our brains fall out, right? And that, that we don't respect the mountain of evidence for a lab escape, right? Because on the, on the other side, what we haven't even gone on, on into really so far is a total lack of evidence for an animal zoonotic origin, right? Mm-hmm. So, 
So in China, they have done a huge search of intermediate, possible intermediate animal. Every conceivable possible intermediate animal has been sampled for coronaviruses. And every conceivable nearby bat population has been sampled for possible coronaviruses, right? And they've basically come up with nothing, right? And what that tells you, you know, like, like we, you know, it took a while for, in the case of SARS and MERS, to identify the reservoir population of the coronaviruses that cause the spillover to the intermediate species and the identification of the intermediate species and its, and its immediate population of viruses that basically can basically ready to infect people. It took a little bit of a while for that information to come out. In the case of SARS-1, it took uh, 15 years because, but that's basically because no one even knew that there were, there were uh, reservoir population in bats. No one could figure out, you know, we did figure out the, the intermediate species quite quickly, but we, because technology, sequencing technology, sampling technology, understanding of virus ecology has moved on tremendously since those two outbreaks, right? That's why people end up, or researchers end up sampling the Chinese countryside all over looking for these reservoirs and so forth. And, and we have the technology now to sequence, you know, next generation sequencing allows you to sequence every piece of DNA and RNA inside a sample within a day or two. You know, okay. that's the unprecedented ability to just take a sample one day and have a, identify its coronaviruses two days later, right? So, so we have this huge, you know, this huge sampling operation that's gone on in China and come up with nothing, right? So what that tells you is that the zoonotic origin theory is probably not true, right? There's, there's, like, there's this huge piece of evidence that basically, if you like, disproves the, the zoonotic origin theory. It doesn't disprove because in the same way that you can't prove something, you know, I like your, the title of your podcast, <laughs> Because it implies that there's a lot of gray areas here and there are degrees of grayness and so on and so forth. But, but what we know at the moment is that the zoonotic origin theory is not forthcoming with any data, right? And this is, this is a huge observation that basically the media seems not to have been able to, to take on board at all, mm -hmm. right? So there have been a few articles with passing references to this huge Chinese sampling operation and a couple of newspaper articles. Uh, there's one in the MIT review that basically focuses on, you know, why no one can find the, the, the animal origin of SARS-CoV-2. And so, but this is a huge fact, right? A really huge fact because we should be, if there was a zoonotic origin, we should be able to find it, right? Mm -hmm. Given all this sampling around Wuhan and around, in the, 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 all the provinces of China and so forth, it, sh it should be somewhere, right? Because we think we know where to look. Yep. And so, so it's astounding that that hasn't come out. Wow. I don't know if this is too much to get into now or not, but just like why the media won't touch that at all or cover it more honestly. Um, and this kind of gets more into, I know you've talked about like the, the pandemic industrial complex and some of these other factors at play. If that's too much to get into, we can save that for some other time. But if you mm. would like to talk about that, I'm fascinated to hear your take on that as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the, 
you know, just to go back to your media, you know, I, we started you, the question you asked, and uh, which I diverted us from. <laughs> In the first instance was, you know, what's, what's wrong with the media that they can't discuss it? So, we, so I talked about the right-wing media and how they have, have, you know, made more of some of the pandemic information. Like, the, you know, they've really run with information from the intelligence community, for example, that, you know, I'm a biologist, so I don't know what goes on in the intelligence community, but I imagine they can read Chinese emails and they can do all kinds of interesting things and have access to loads of information that we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know this information from the from the secret services is not being published right so the, the secret services is making allegations about what they know about what happened in the wuhan institute of virology that cannot be verified so you've got people in especially in the right-wing media who have who have made a lot of this kind of information it's not verifiable, you know? And so, so we have a long history of hearing about weapons of mass destruction and, and you know, Russian interference and, and all these stories about that it's, at the end of the day, boil down to, to misinformation. So, so you have to be super careful of any information that quote unquote comes from the intelligence agencies, right? In this case. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, but on the other hand, you've got the left-wing media that's basically been like, they basically kowtowed to every scientific expert out there. And, you know, democracy now, for example, you know, one of the reasons why we ended up covering the pandemic is that I heard Peter Daszak, who is the head of the, the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a nonprofit based in New, New York City, which we subsequently know was being given money by US taxpayers to fund the gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He has he has, has a huge conflict of interest here, right? I mean, he his 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 research proposal may have uh, initiated the the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? And and he's being interviewed by Democracy Now and wow. saying that, that that this pandemic cannot possibly have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I right? can't believe and Democracy Now did that. They did. And, and so they interviewed him and, and he is so categorically decisive about this in dismissing this theory that it immediately raised red flags. This was back in April that he was interviewed, April last year. That, that was one of the catalytic things that incited us to, to investigate this origin more. Because I was incensed, like surely you can just say that, you know, we don't think it came from a lab, and, but we don't know one way or the other. You know, that would have been the scientifically reasonable thing to say. But he was absolutely categorical and, and dismissive of the possibility of a lab leak. And then you find out all these conflicts of interest that he has are not revealed by democracy now. So, 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 he, so, so you've got the left media, right, that have been, been basically... Uh, that has seemed to have swallowed every story offered by the scientific community. And the scientific community in general has a conflict of interest, right? Because virologists are making vaccines. They're making uh, diagnostic tools to detect novel coronaviruses. They are, they are uh, they're making um, preventive treatments, you know, remdesivir type things, right? So you've got this whole constellation of a research community 
some of which are working directly on coronaviruses, some of which are working on other uh, other related vir vi uh, viruses and you know neighboring labs and so on and so forth. You got this massive group of people who are basically an in crowd of conflicted individuals, and they're the ones being interviewed by the left wing media all the time and asked about whether they think it comes from the lab. And they always go, no, no, of course it didn't come from the lab. That's just a conspiracy theory. And so they actually, you know, they are the ones who came out and said it was a conspiracy theory, right? It was a scientist, right? It turns out that Peter Daszak uh, orchestrated a letter to the Lancet in uh, the early days of the pandemic, right? In which he, he you know, when the letter comes out, it basically says the lab escape is a conspiracy theory and uh, you don't need to pay any attention to it whatsoever. And, uh, but what the letter doesn't say is that it, it states that they have, the authors have no conflict of interest, right? Wow. Every single person on that letter has a deep conflict of interest, right? Of many different kinds. But also the people, some of the people on the letter turned out to work for the EcoHealth Alliance. They use affiliations of various universities and so forth which, which pretty much are bogus, some of them. Uh, and they sign that letter and give no, only Peter Daszak lists his affiliation with the EcoHealth Alliance that is funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do this virus collection and gain of function research, right? And then wow. you have other members of the scientific community who talk about, also talk about, there was a letter in uh, a publication, which they call a technically is a correspondence. So Nature Magazine published this correspondence piece and they make it look like a scientific article, right? So correspondence articles in Nature Magazine are supposed to be 800 words long. They're supposed to have only one figure. They're supposed to only have 10 references. This is just like, you know, like a, it's like a letter to the New York Times or something. It's a scientific uh -huh. of that. But this correspondence piece submitted by uh, some coronavirus coronavirus, prominent virologists, many of them coronavirologists, basically poo-poos in a scientific seeming way, the whole possibility that it came from a lab, which they do by building up this straw man of how, how if it was a release from a lab and engineered, it must have been done in this way, I'm starting with this virus and so on and so forth, none of which assumptions should be taken particularly seriously. Uh, so they build up this straw man idea of a lab escape and then they they but they basically use this format and it looks like a scientific paper and you read it and you read the pdf file or whatever and you assume that you're reading a scientific paper but really it's it's a just a simple letter to the to the editors of uh, nature magazine but what in nature medicine i guess is one of their stable journals but what's interesting about this format is that it is the, the, the maximum size is supposed to be, as I said, 800 words. The maximum number of references is supposed to be 10. The maximum page size is supposed to be two. Well, this article is massively overruns all of those mm -hmm. so-called boundaries, right? What that tells you, uh, apart from the fact that this is terrible science, right? If, if you go back and look at, look at the arguments they make, they're, they're really weak, right? But they make all these very, very strong statements in there saying that basically was cited as thousands of citations to this paper, right? It was quoted all over the media as definitively refuting the possibility of a lab outbreak, but it has 
uh, basically the nature medicine itself is facilitating this fraud, right? Because they are basically going against all their all their editorial guidelines and and policies and so forth to publish in a in a roaring hurry this paper that that basically at the end of the day is is in my opinion discredited science. Mm-hmm. So so. So you have this whole constellation of people. So you've got, you've got the scientific community that's spreading this very consistent message. It's conspiracy. There's no basis whatsoever to this. And then the media, especially the left-wing media, just laps it right up. This cite the exact same signatories all the time. Peter Daszak cited, new, you know, quoted numerous times in the New York Times, numerous times in The Economist, numerous times in The Guardian given his own space to write articles and so on and so forth all his buddies given similar opportunities and nobody you know nobody from the guardian has ever come and asked me whether we think it came from a lab none none of these big you know only independent journalists basically uh and with one or two exceptions the bbc has as as come and talked to us a few other a few other outlets but basically this huge collection of outlets that basically did not uh, you know, cited Peter Daszak and said that this was a lab escape, there was a, a lab escape was a conspiracy and so forth, have not done any kind of due diligence, as far as I can see, to actually establish whether these people were telling them the truth. Wow. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> media is, both sides just seem so polarized and so wedded to their perspectives. There's like nobody doing real reporting and real investigative research anymore and looking at those conflicts of interest. So that's, uh, so do you think like Peter Daszak, for example, when you say he has a conflict of interest, do you, what do you think he's afraid of? Like, is he afraid that he will be made to look bad if it turns out that this did come from a lab or that's the most plausible theory or that he'll have to stop funding or stop is he making money off of this research in any way, or what is he, what does he have to gain from these different narratives? Well, I mean, he runs a nonprofit, right? I mean, he has many. It seems to wear many hats, but but his main one is running a nonprofit called the Eco Health Alliance. And the Eco Health Alliance, nominally, and it started off this way, I think, is a basically a, it's a One Health uh, uh, project. Right. Well, the idea of one help is like, you know, in, in its original incarnation, is that we can stop people from destroying the rainforest, right? And this is all assumes that it's people and not industrial conglomerates that are destroying the rainforest. But mm-hmm. the but the idea is that we can stop people from destroying the rainforest if we can make them understand that their, you know, their health depends on preventing pandemics and human exposure and incursions into the rainforest and so forth. And all these bad things that people do in the rainforest and these you know, natural and semi-natural areas. If we can draw attention to the connection between these things, then we can, uh, we can convince people to preserve those habitats. And that sounds right. good at face value. <laughs> And, and, and it is a useful thing to point out. It's an important and useful thing to point out to people. But his, this, the EcoHealth Alliance has ended up dominating the One Health scene, right? And what they've done also is turn that on its head, right? 
So the, the, what, what they've ended up doing is basically protecting companies that exploit the rainforest, right? At the same time, basically by, by, by focusing attention on things like the wildlife trade, right? Because, because if you look at the EcoHealth Alliance's funding, right, they're getting funding from Johnson & Johnson, they're getting funding from uh, Rickett Benkeser. They're getting funding from Colgate Palmolive, right? What do these companies have in common, apart from one or two of them making vaccines, right? Is that they are the huge users of palm oil, right? So what the Eco Health Alliance is doing is instead of using the One Health concept to protect the rainforest, they're using that concept to basically point fingers at the wildlife trade and letting the people who destroy the rainforest, who are the who are the as much as anything, the palm oil people, uh, off the hook, right? For their for their practices in Malaysia and so on and so forth, right? So they're taking money from these big companies, and then they're pointing fingers at the wildlife trade and saying we have to stop the wildlife trade, we have to to ban wildlife trade, we have to, which is basically blaming the little guy, right? Now I, I'm not saying the wildlife trade is not a problem. But mm -hmm. it le you know, many times greater a problem for habitat destruction is the palm oil industry. Right? And do any of these, uh, do, do they talk about like in, uh, industrial agriculture, animal agriculture at all as well, or just palm oil? Barely. No, they don't talk about, they don't, they don't talk not, about palm oil either, right? Do, they don't talk about anything, yeah. <laughs> right? Except they mostly talk about the wildlife trade. If you go to their website and you make all the effort going to their website, then then you can find that stuff about about pictures of palm oil and, and and you know devastated rainforest. But when when they you know they go about their business in the world, that's not what they talk about. Right? Gotcha. So 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 and instead what they talk about is how we have to test. You know they were involved in testing remdesivir on coronaviruses, right? They were they were involved in. They are harvesting wild viruses from you know viruses from these bat caves right so one of the possible ways in which this pandemic started is that simply a virologist you know sampling these bats went to a cave became infected and came back to wuhan mm -hmm. right and there are pictures online of people from the wuhan institute of virology you know being bitten by bats not even wearing gloves right wow so so you've got these people who are telling everybody to avoid contact with bats and so on and so forth going out into the wild and sticking their fingers into down bats' throats, right? And their little swabbing things and so on and so forth, right? So, so but this is the research that the, this so-called One Health organization is doing, right? They're doing research on making vaccines, testing, doing gain-of-function research to test the dangerousness of the, of the viruses that they collect and so on and so forth. And this feeds in to the needs of the diagnostics industry, the vaccine industry, the treatment industry, the kind of people who are making, you know, small drug pharmaceuticals and so on and so forth, right? So they've made themselves the agents useful to these huge industries, right? Mm -hmm. And in the name of One Health, right? So, so Peter Daszak is drawing a salary of $400,000 a year. His, his nonprofit is bringing in tens of millions of dollars a year. They're getting money from the US military. 
They're getting money from the pharmaceutical industry. They're getting money from the US taxpayer in terms of the National Institutes of Health, and they're doing nothing for One Health at the end of the day. So, so Peter Daszak is doing very nicely out of all this. And they have ambitious projects, right? They have, they have what they, they're trying to work on a thing called the Global Virome Project, where you basically go to every country in the world and every animal in the world, and you basically try to sample uh, viruses from those animals, right? In wow. order to predict, <laughs> in order to predict future pandemics. Which right? maybe if we just left the animals alone, quit trying to collect and control everything, maybe we wouldn't have those pandemics in the first place. Precisely. All right. Well, thank you. This has been great. Um, the final, final quick question I'll ask that I'm asking everyone is, what does science is gray mean to you in the context of what we've talked about? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's to me, it's in part that every answer has a nuanced, every question rather has a nuanced answer. Everything is contingent, right? Everything has to be considered as a, you know, that it might become true in the future that, that you know, we have, I mean, I've written, I wrote an article one time about chemical testing, right? The, the, I did, the issue with chemical testing is that we're subjecting all these animals uh, to, to experimental treatments and trying to test whether the pharmaceutical or the, or the toxic, you know, the industrial chemical is safe for people or not, okay? And, and, and we're present with the, the premise of this whole set of uh, this, the premise of these whole experiments is that animal tests can predict the safety of a chemical for a human, right? Well, a, chem uh, a scientific experiment is only valid under the conditions under which it's conducted, mm -hmm. right? If you test, a, even if you test a vaccine or a pharmaceutical or, or a toxic chemical, on people, if you only test that on people of a certain age, the scientific validity that, that that experiment has is only for people of that certain age or that certain social class or that certain dietary habit or whatever. Like you have to understand that science does not explain all about everything based on a few experiments. You know, you cannot say that, that a chemical is safe because it was tested on mice of a certain age with a, taking a certain diet, living under certain dietary conditions, that that extrapolates even to mice, let alone, you know, to other mice, let alone to people and to, to pets or, or uh, farm animals. So, so science is always a very limited thing, but the scientific community has a vested interest in trying to pretend that these experiments have some kind of global validity because that's what we pay them for, right? We pay them to find out that chemicals are safe, that pharmaceuticals are safe and so on and so forth. But really they can't usually answer that question. They can usually only answer it in a very limited way. And so, so the grayness to me is, is constituted in, in many ways in, the, in that concept. Uh, awesome, thank you so much. Well, it was, this was a really fun conversation. I'm glad I got to ask you all these questions and uh, maybe we'll have to do another one sometime. I'm sure there's a whole lot more we could talk about.
Oh yeah, I have uh, quite a few topics that probably would interest your readers. Yeah. Well, thank 